Well, this evening we're looking at the question how to foster and further community. And given that after the evening service tonight we have a rather special ice cream social, I'm tempted to say that the answer to the question how to foster and further community is ice cream. Community has become something of a buzzword among evangelical Christians in the last 10 years or so. People are always for community. They'll go to a church because they like its community. They'll not go to a church because they don't like its community. Uh, There are many books written about community. It's Something that people want. It's not always defined what it is. Whatever it is, people want it. Community. I suppose in some ways it's a reaction against the emphasis of the 1980s where individualism was the thing. And many of us saw that there were some problems with that. People were just going off doing their own their own thing and ignoring whatever other people wanted. It's sometimes called the decade of greed. Famously, it said, greed is good. Individualism, what I want, and there's been a reaction against that for some understandable reasons, and a, a, an emphasis upon community. But it's rarely thought through what community is, how to get it, how to foster it, and how to further it. And how are you going to foster it and further it if you're not quite sure what it is? I don't know. Everyone seems to assume they know what community is. And I suppose it comes down to a feeling. I I feel wanted. I feel a part of that group. I feel like I belong. Those are people who are similar to me. And I suppose we've always known that kind of thing. I remember when I was uh, first doing a church uh, plant, we had a very dynamic uh, lay leader, non-ordained, non-on-staff lay leader in the congregation, an African-American woman who was very gifted at evangelism, very gifted at connecting people. And she would often uh, quote to me the Billy Graham Association survey that if an individual were to end up being a part of a church, they had decided, they had, uh, they had discovered through um, statistics and surveys uh, that the, the number one predictor of someone ending up staying in a church was whether on the first Sunday they were there, they met two people like them. It's really interesting, isn't it? So if someone goes to a church, and on that first Sunday, if they're in the medical field, they meet a nurse or a doctor, um, then statistically, they're much more likely to end up going to that church than if on that first Sunday they don't meet anyone or they meet, I don't know, rock musicians or something, Uh, someone they can't identify with. 
So I suppose we, we have feelings around it that are hard to quantify, but we don't have definitions. And there's been this pushback against individualism so that we're for community without, and this is, I suppose, a, something of a, of a personal, I was going to say frustration, but that'd be too strong, observation, without thinking through whether you can go too far in the other direction. Is it possible to so emphasize community that you downplay the individual? Surely it is. Uh, so many different examples of that down through history. Uh, the Roman Empire's Pax Romana was a, you know, the peace of Rome was an emphasis on community. We're all in this together. There'll be peace if you. <laughs> Follow Caesar. If you subjugate your individual to the larger purpose, empires have always made that kind of claim. You get the same thing going on in China, where they're clearly persecuting, if not committing borderline genocide. And I don't know enough of the statistics to be able to claim whether it is genocide against the Uyghur people. Well, they're not fitting in. They're not fitting into the larger purpose. Who cares whether the individual doesn't want that? We, the community, don't want it. You can for sure go too far in the other direction. The other observation I would make on this sort of evangelical push for community is it seems deeply ironic to me in many ways because, of course, the, the very idea of the individual, in some ways, is a deeply Christian idea. Each of us is made in the image of God. Each of us has value. That's right rooted in the, completely rooted in the Judeo-Christian tradition. And there's been so much discourse and conversation down through the years. Augustine, his his most famous book, The Confessions, is, is in many ways the book that kick-started the Western idea of the individual as opposed to the more Eastern idea of the purely communal experience. So when I read all these books or hear this conversation about community, I have in my mind questions. It's like, well, yes, community is good. We should love each other. We, should, we are a family as a church. We should have a community in Wheaton and the city of Chicago, but what about the individual? And how does that fit in? And to start to answer some of those questions, in my own mind at least, I've been reading a book by a man called Oliver O'Donovan. And before I tell you just how brilliant he is, I should mention that he's a family friend, so I may be biased. But Oliver O'Donovan was the youngest ever professor of ethics at Oxford University and is now a professor at Edinburgh, and is an evangelical Christian, and is one of the most brilliant minds still alive today. And he's written this book that he calls The Ways of Judgment, and it's filled with amazing ideas. And in it, he has this one sentence that I won't quote exactly correctly, but because they're often quite complicated sentences. But basically what he says is this, that a society, so think community, a society, a society only succeeds as long as the individuals within it 
can imagine their fulfillment within that society. Otherwise, he says, freedom is destroyed. Now, surely that's right. And the question then is, how do we go about it? Well, we're, we're going to look at the Bible uh, tonight, of course, and I've just got three movements to our reflections on community. And the first is fake community, and then we'll look at biblical community, and then we'll look at the wider community, because, of course, as Christians, we all relate at schools and in society and in the, in the city and uh, in um, the public realm as well. So we're going to look at fake community, biblical community, and then the wider community. So first of all, um, if you have a Bible, turn with me to Genesis chapter 11, and we'll look at fake community, or a community that is not healthy, is not what we would want. And uh, Genesis chapter 11 is the story of the Tower of Babel. I was amused to discover that you can now get an app called Babel to help you translate languages, which amuses me, of course, because the point of Babel is precisely the reverse. Actually, an app called Babel, or Babel, I think maybe Americans say, I can't remember how you pronounce it over here, but um, uh, an app called Babel actually should make it impossible for you to understand languages. That would be the point. But anyway, um, Genesis chapter 11 goes like this. Now, the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. See, they're wanting a place and a community. But then, verse 5, And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down. Uh, Let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth. And they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. So there you have a community of sorts. They've gathered together around uh, this building project and they're aiming to build a tower right to the heavens. Most scholars think it's one of those ziggurats you can still see um, um, ruins of in, in, in the Middle East, whether this tower that is attempting in some naive way to get right to the heavens. You can build it big enough to ascend to God, a stairway to heaven, to make your own way to God and to establish your name by having a bigger tower than any other tower. And of course, 
human beings have often tried to do that with scale, haven't they? To build a skyscraper right to the heavens. I built that. That's my name. But this actually isn't an individualistic um, endeavor. It's a community endeavor. Uh, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower. Uh, So we'll make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. They're trying to have a city, a community. But it's not the right kind of community. It's the wrong kind of community. And what's wrong about it? Well, of course, what's wrong about it is they're not worshipping God. And therefore... And because of that, it's not stable. It will be dispersed. God will disperse it. They're building an idol out of the community. It's about them. It's not about God, their community. It's about them. And there are many communities. I mentioned some of the empires that have done this sort of thing down through... Uh, human history, but more in our own society today, we see a lot of this. One of the interesting things that's going on today is that increasingly our society is moving, I mean our, I mean Western society is moving away from a a guilt, grace kind of society whereby we're relating to God, either feeling condemned and guilty or receiving His grace moving away from that kind of society, much more to a kind of Tower of Babel kind of society, where instead it's honor-shame. We're an honor-shame society increasingly. And an honor-shame society is not predominantly concerned with my standing before God, whether it's guilt or grace. It's now concerned with my standing with the community. Am I being honored or shamed? And there's lots of things that are fueling that movement, um, and there's lots of repercussions to that movement. This is partly why there's so much problem with mental health today. We are highly attuned to what people think about us, to what the community thinks, to whether we're being honored or shamed. And that's why sometimes to those who are in their 70s and 80s, those of us who are younger can seem a little fragile because it's hard for us to stand as an individual. We tend to think about what the community thinks about us. So it's partly fueled by ideology and has repercussions to mental health, but it's also fueled by technology, of course. So everyone has a phone, everyone's on social media, and social media is a machine to increase this honor-shame, how many likes you get, how many follows you get, what people say in the stream. It's constant what the community thinks of you. And we're desperate to build community, diversity and, and welcome. And we're desperate because we feel that society is fragmenting, which it is, And we're trying to put the center on us. 
on what the community thinks and feels. But it's not stable. The center of human society cannot stand on what other people think of that human society. It doesn't have sufficient gravitational pull. It's an understandable desire to build a Tower of Babel so that we're not dispersed, but God will come down and disperse it. It doesn't work. We need something else. So that's the fake uh, community. What about the biblical community? Well, come with me to Acts and uh, chapter 2. And those of you who've been around College Church for a while will know that we often use Acts chapter 2 as um, uh, a fulcrum passage for what we're trying to do as a church. There are many others we've used over the years, but this is one that's often been used. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. This is the reversal of the Tower of Babel, of course, Pentecost. Tower of Babel, the languages are confused. Now God gives his spirit and he gives the gift of language to create a real community. That's what happens at Pentecost. That's the point of Pentecost. And this church is formed, which is described in idyllic terms in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. It goes like this. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, And breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And as many of you know, we've often gone to this passage for our key uh, vision, our key values. We talk about proclaiming the gospel. We talk about discovering Jesus, growing in our faith, in our relationship with God, and then proclaiming that gospel so that more and more might come to know Jesus. Um, but, and that's, uh, that's all there, you can tell in the text. But of course, the, the, the key sensibility of the text is there's this community that is now around God. It's uh, the apostles' teaching, which of course they're teaching what Jesus told them to teach. It's the breaking of of bread and it's prayers. There's awe. There's a sense of the awesome presence of God. Um, There's uh, praising God. There's the Lord at work adding to their number. This is a community that is now orientated around God and what he wants. And that's what gives it its stability. And this is course the church and it's the um, it's the biblical community that's what we want to be like uh, this is descriptive there's certain parts to this that are unique to that time for sure but it's descriptive 
of the kind of thing that churches down through the years and still today have always wanted to be like here, filled with joy and the work of God and the, and the, the unity of, of God's people and, and, and the, the society outside saying, they're amazing, what's going on? I'd love to hear more about that. And, 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 God, and the evangelistic effort being blessed by God's sovereign power to save and all that is what we've always all prayed for and worked for in this church and in any other church that you've been a part of. It's a wonderful biblical community. But we shouldn't idealize it in such a way that we don't realize that even here in Acts, things can rapidly go wrong. And that's important to notice. Um, so, for instance, if you, just, if you do have the Bible open, you can just turn over a page to Acts Chapter 5, you'll see the famous story of Ananias and Sapphira, who are, by divine intervention, um, judged because they lied about their generosity. And we're told that Satan filled their heart. This is, this is just a moment later. And so when... Um, we come across things in our community that disappoint us. We should not be tempted to think that therefore we're necessarily completely on the wrong track. If the Jerusalem church had that kind of problem, and of course it needs to be addressed when there are problems, we shouldn't be surprised when we have problems. That's what... Um, You can make the case for there would be no letters in the New Testament if there weren't problems in the churches. We're not in heaven yet. This community is still imperfect, and there will be difficulties. You see that with Acts chapter 5. You even see it, um, if you turn over one more page, Acts chapter 6 with the choosing of the, of the seven, usually thought to be the, the archetypal deacons because they're servants of tables, and the word servant is the word from which we get deacon from. But these seven, the, the, the establishment of one of the two offices of the biblical church, the two offices of the biblical church, the pastor, elder, and then the, um, uh, the deacons, uh, the elders and then the deacons, the pastors, the elders, and then the deacons, those two offices. This establishment of the diaconate only comes as there's complaints uh, about distribution of food to widows, grumbling, sort of thing that happens in, even in the Jerusalem church. And what is more, there was probably some sort of ethnic or ethnic plus religious tension about it, about the Hellenists against the Greek-speaking part of the community versus the Hebrew-speaking part of the community. And so we shouldn't be surprised when, in our terms, as we think about race today, there's even racial, can be racial challenges or socioeconomic challenges or disagreements about the budget or whatever. These things happen. And what we need is men filled with the spirit and wisdom to deal with them, as those seven deacons were. So there's a biblical community that Acts chapter 2 describes, which is 
centered upon God and with awe and the power of his word and the work of his spirit and prayer and praise and joy and the work of God to reach more people day after day and all that, but at the same time, don't, don't get so idealistic about church that when something isn't perfect, you kind of run to the doors and think, well, that's, I can't be a part of that. Newsflash. This place is filled with sinners. And it makes it all more amazing that God still loves us and still has grace for us and a purpose for us. And you, as a sinner too, are very welcome. As we discover Jesus and grow in our faith and then impact the world by proclaiming the gospel. So that's the biblical community. We looked at the fake kind, the Tower of Babel. We looked at God's ultimate solution to that, which is his people gathered together around the gospel. Um, But what about the wider community? This is all very churchy. What about schools, neighborhoods, the public world in which we all live? How do we uh, interrelate with that? So... Uh, well, let's briefly look at that. So let's look at Matthew chapter... This, I think, is, in my view, the be- Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, in my view, is, is the best simple text for this. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 13. Jesus, of course, is teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, and the Sermon on the Mount is not designed to give us like the perfect society. The Sermon on the Mount is designed, this is really Martin Luther's insight on the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Mount is designed to show us that we can't possibly keep God's law and therefore we need Jesus, the teacher of the Sermon on the Mount. That's the point. It's to cause us to come to Him. So, um, but in doing that, He describes the kind of thing we are meant to be. So Matthew 5 um, and verse 13 is talking about this new community that he's formed around him, around Jesus. And he says this, You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Well, we don't have time to get into all these, the details of what Jesus is saying here very profoundly, but basically he's saying that the salt, of course, in the ancient world was a preservative. It was also used to make food taste nice, but they didn't have refrigerators then, of course, and so salt was used to preserve meat from going off, from rotting. And so when Jesus says, you're the salt of the earth, what he's saying is, you are the moral preservatives of the earth. Your task, my people, Jesus is saying, is to go out into the world, and by the way you live and the what you say, Prevent the world from going bad 
from rotting. You're the moral preservatives of society as you relate to the wider community. Get involved in politics. Of course. Get involved in school boards. Of course. Get involved in your neighborhood. Of course. Get involved in your family. Not just your nuclear family, but aunts and uncles. Get involved there. Of course. You're the salt of the earth. Of course you must. Your job is in any way you can to try and raise the moral tone to stop the place decaying faster than it already is. (laughs) So you're the salt of the earth, but you're also the light of the world. Um, And of course the city set on a hill is the church. That's what Jesus is talking about. That's the city on a hill. It's the church. You are the light of the world. So you, Jesus says, My disciples, Jesus says, you, you people, your job is not only to be the moral preservatives of the earth, but to illuminate the darkness. And I, I think this is more the verbal side to the engagement with the outside world. What you say, what you speak, you need to use your words to illuminate truth so that people can see the truth and understand what is uh, what is what is real and what is what is true and in illuminating truth you're not only the global moral preservatives you're the global spiritual illuminators so of course tell your friends about Jesus of course pray for opportunities to witness they're not going to see the light if you don't tell them about me, Jesus is saying. So our task in the wider community is to be involved and to speak. Now, we should just, before we close, answer a couple of classic problematic questions that people have about that uh, and particularly have about it these days, which is, When should we resist the authorities? And when should we go with the flow? Very important question. And churches have often got it wrong. And it is complicated to answer that question, but the principle, I don't think, is that complicated. So on the one hand, if you have your Bible open, there's Romans chapter 13. And there Paul says, Romans 13, very bluntly, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Obviously, he's talking about civil authorities, not church authorities here. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. So the state is an institution of God. Amazing thought. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. The the New Testament church doesn't have the sword. It doesn't have the power of arrest and throwing people in jail and 
making judgments. That now, because we're not a theocracy, is given to the state. He does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing, pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes, to whom taxes are owed. Revenue, to whom revenue is owed. Respect, to whom respect is owed. Honor, to whom honor is owed. Now, of course, the amazing thing about that passage is almost certainly it was written when uh, Nero was emperor of Rome. And Paul is not saying he approves of, of Nero's behavior, but he is saying that the office needs to be respected and the taxes need to be paid. And it's an extraordinary passage, given that he's writing to Romans, when just down the street, gladiators were fighting, um, babies were being exposed to their death, and he says, submit to the authorities. Astonishing thing. But the, if you only hear that, you can make the mistake that the German, not all the German church, but a large part of the German church made under Nazi Germany, which is just to go with the flow with Hitler when they should have resisted. Because there is another witness in the New Testament too, and that's, uh, you'll find that in Acts chapter 4, where Peter and John are dragged before the council, and they, uh, Acts chapter 4, uh, verse 18, they called them, and charge them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. So, did they submit to that? No. Verse 19, But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them. Um, because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. So they were told not to, say, not to, not to preach anymore. Don't teach that part of the Bible. Don't preach the gospel. Be quiet, church. And we say, no. We have a higher authority. So if the state comes and threatens me that I cannot preach the whole counsel of God that includes very alarming things about sexual morality, for instance, my job, our job as a community, is to say, no. Throw us in jail if you will. But we are a city on the hill. We are a light to the world. We are the salt of the earth. And we cannot but speak about what we have seen and heard. So the question to me always is, when we're asking, you know, should we submit to the authorities or should we resist them, is the question is, is this a Romans 13 situation or an Acts 4? I'm not saying the answer to that is easy. But that, to me, is the question. And there is a time to resist, as 
Of course, Martin Luther King Jr. did. And of course, as Martin Luther did. There is a time to protest, as Protestants did. But there's, it's not always. <laughs> and it's not, the person in power is not a good man. Nero was not a good man. The issue is the authenticity of the Christian witness. Anyway, so we, we thought enough about all that. Fake community, biblical community, and then the wider community. Let me give you a mnemonic to remember it by. Here's the mnemonic. Ice, as in ice cream. Uh, I, inspiration. The inspiration of the Scriptures. When the Bible's at the heart of a community, it's more likely to be healthy. The inspiration of the Scriptures. C, Christ. Christ rules the church. And we center upon Him. He rules through His Word. And then E, evangelism. Community is healthy when it is a light to the world and is the salt of the earth. Let's pray together. Our Lord God, thank you for your word and we pray that you would help us as a church to foster and further real community. In Jesus' name, amen.